the morning. So any jokes I make are going to be me deflecting because I'm really overwhelmed and emotional right now. So I'll just crack jokes throughout the next 30 minutes or so, and we'll call it a day. But um, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we're settling in a bit. Um, Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for all that you do for your people, Father. And I just pray as we look into your word this morning, Lord, that you speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you convict us of sin and draw us near to yourself, Lord God. Make us a holy people um, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord God, as it says in your word. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing in our series in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but um, just a couple things I just wanted to say. This is, this is a really special morning for our family. Being ordained and installed as a pastor officially here at Redeemer is something that Deanna and I never really dreamed of. Four years ago, we took a step of faith and I quit my job and enrolled at Westminster Theological Seminary, hoping and praying that God would open up doors for us to serve the church here in New Jersey. And we could not have asked for a better outcome. Um, you all have received our family with nothing but warmth and love, and we are extremely grateful to all of you. Our, our family's also here, and they've been walking with us throughout this entire journey, along with so many other people. And all I can do is thank God for his faithfulness to our family. And I think one of the most amazing and beautiful things about following Jesus is that we as individuals are invited to do it alongside others. And that's what we've been heading throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The upside-down kingdom came into this world through the person and work of Jesus, and he rescued and is continuing to rescue for himself a people. And the sermon is teaching us how we as a people are to live out the kingdom together. It is a call that is issued to a community, that is issued to the people of God. And while the people of God are made up of individuals, that calling is placed upon the people, plural. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to bring the moral and ethical vision of heaven into a fallen and sinful world. And the Lord's Prayer, which is what we're looking at this morning, sits at the very center of this heavenly invitation. Calling us to share in the heavenly life of Christ as adopted sons and daughters of God. Providing for us a foretaste of what eternity with Jesus will be like. So growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, we called this prayer the Our Father. And we had to memorize it as kids, as I'm sure many of you did as well. And, and for me, it was always a goal to see how quickly I can recite the prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come, the will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Right? And I, would, and I just wanted to really get it down. And, and I don't say any of this disparagingly. In fact, I have the Lord's Prayer memorized, and that's a wonderful thing. But the question is, what is the Lord's Prayer? Well, it's a pattern, right? It's a pattern that teaches us how to pray. And it's a pattern that leads with our eyes on God first. Our Father who art in heaven. 
Right? The focus is on God first. And, and the structure of the Lord's Prayer is so interesting because it's very similar to that of the Ten Commandments. It begins vertically with God and it ends horizontally with ourselves and one another. And the center of the prayer itself, on earth as it is in heaven, draws our attention toward the goal of creation, on earth as it is in heaven. As I noted previously, the prayer stands at the central point of the sermon. And the significance of this is that as citizens of this upside-down kingdom, there is certainly a heart-driven ethic and morality that should characterize and shape our lives. But what is most significant is the fact that we have access to God. And he invites us into his world through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. We have access to God. That's what this prayer is getting at. Our Father in heaven. We, as a people, get to call God Father. Now let that sink in just for like a few seconds. We, created beings, get to call God Father. We get to call him Father. What does that mean? I want to talk a little bit this morning about a doctrine that, that is taught throughout church history called the doctrine of adoption. What it means that you and I, when we bend our knee to Jesus, we are brought into union with Christ. And by way of that union, we are adopted into a new family. And we are made sons and daughters of God. In 1 John, chapter 2, 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, it says this. It says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And what does it mean that we're children of God? Well, it means, one, he says it right here, that we have confidence now. We have confidence. We can walk through this world with confidence and not shame. I think of when I was growing up, my father, he owned, um, he owned a coffee truck, and he used to sell coffee and, and lunch down in Battery Park. And I remember that when my friends would come over the house... I would open up that truck and give them like chips and all sorts of stuff. And, and the reason why I was able to open up that door and give all my friends chips and, and whatever was on that truck, was all sorts of things. It was amazing. Was because my old man owned the truck. And I had confidence. I had confidence because that was my dad's truck. How much more is our confidence as we walk through this world knowing full well that it is our Father's world? And while the prince of the power of the air might be active, he is slowly being snuffed out. 
by the good news of Jesus Christ. But this is our Father's world. So we can walk through this life without shame. We can walk through this life in confidence. It says in Romans 8, 12 through 17, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I feel like you probably are beginning to memorize that last part because I feel like I say it every single Sunday. We have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There's something about being a son of the king. There's something about being the son of our father in heaven that gives us freedom, right? No longer are we enslaved to sin, but we are now free to walk in righteousness. Ephesians says it like this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. As sons and daughters of God, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sin. We have access to God. We have everything because everything is going to be given to Jesus and if we are in Christ and we are his younger brothers as it kind of talks about in the scriptures then we get everything he gets so what does it mean that we are adopted it means everything it means everything and that's the confidence we need to walk in through our lives with knowing full well that we are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. But, but notice the text, verses 9. It says, it says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I keep on saying it old school, so I apologize. We get to call him Father. We're still on the first verse here. We get to call him Father. The language of the Lord's Prayer is all plural. It's all plural. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The use of the plural in the Lord's Prayer indicates that this is a prayer given to those who have become, through Jesus, brothers and sisters as children of God. Look around. Brothers and sisters, we are all a part of one family of God. The expression here in Tom's River, the local expression of the church here, yes, 100%. And everyone in this room, if we have bent our knee to King Jesus, then we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But more so than just this room, but throughout the entire world, we are brothers and sisters to every single person who has bent their knee to Jesus Christ. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we claim the Father while neglecting our kin? 
Do we claim the Father while neglecting our kin? And, and what I want to talk about is what this doesn't mean and then what this does mean. This doesn't mean that we are not able to bring about justified criticism when it comes to teaching and doctrine that falls outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. It doesn't mean that everyone is family, even those outside of the faith. But what it does mean is that any sort of posture of contempt toward those who are unlike us, whether ethnically, nationally, racially, is an abomination to God. It's an abomination to God. The fatherhood of God is not some American ideal, but rather it's a truth that stretches across borders into people groups of which we might have opinions of which that are less than admirable. God's calling us to something. As we pray this prayer... It's more than a pattern. It's at least a pattern for how we are to pray, but it's also a declaration of what the world is actually like. Because the gospel teaches us the reality of the world. See, what we live in and the sin and turmoil that we experience, that's not what God had, had intended. The truth of the world is that Jesus sits on the throne. That's the truth of the world. And that one day he's coming back to rescue his church and to snuff out evil completely. That's the reality of the story. I want to flip, with, um, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Actually, first let's go to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we have what is called the call of Abraham. And in verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, the goal of the, Christian, of the, of the story of, of the scriptures was that all nations would bend their knee to King Jesus. That all nations would bend their knee to King Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, it says it like this, verses 12 through 18. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2 is that there was a group of people called the Gentiles. There was a group of people called Israel. And those two people were at odds with one another. They didn't come together. And the majority of us in this room are most likely of the Gentile persuasion. And there are some people who are Jewish, but most of us are probably Gentiles. And the reality of the gospel 
The reality of what Jesus did when he came into this world is he tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that no longer are we separated by racial and ethnic division, but rather we are all, if we bend our knee to Christ, all one in Christ. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, we need to recognize that we are locking arms with those from around the world and those people, regardless of our preconceived notions about them, are fellow image bearers and brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're getting at here. Yes, this is a pattern of prayer. This is teaching us how we are corporately, and I think principally we can look at individually how we are to approach God. But what he's declaring at the front is that our Father in heaven is the Father of all nations. All nations. One commentator says it like this, national boundaries are supposed to be places where cultures meet to bless one another giving and receiving gifts. However, boundaries have become places where we meet to destroy one another or to prevent entering or leaving. Instead of setting tables for joyful feasting, we build walls and watchtowers. Our our suspicions of one another only intensify. Jesus is calling the church to be different. Jesus is calling us to be different. And it's going to interact and it's going to push any sort of political or national or whatever persuasions we might have, it's going to come at odds with that. It has to. If everything we believe politically lines up with our Christianity, then we're doing something wrong with our Christianity. That has to be how we understand this. That has to be how we understand this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Hallowed be your name is another way of saying, sanctified be your name. Separate and distinct among all the other so-called gods be your name. And the key is here, it's, it's, this, it's so weird. As I'm reading the Lord's Prayer this week and I'm thinking through it, it's like, it's like there's, this, there's this missional push in the Lord's Prayer. There's this missional push that's forcing us as we pray it to step outside of what is comfortable. Because what does it mean that God's name be holy? It means that God's people as we live out this world, because God is holy, we can't rob him of that, but we can certainly deceive the world into thinking of him as something else. How we live reflects what the world thinks of our God. So we are called as the people of God to live holy lives set apart unto him so that the world might see our good works and glorify him in heaven. This is what we're dealing with here. As we pray this prayer, we need to know what we're engaging with. We're engaging with the Father in heaven who is the Father of all the nations whose name better be holy among his people whose name better be holy among his people. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That the rule and reign of Christ would be manifested throughout the earth. Tim Keller says it like this in his book on prayer. He says that this is a lordship petition. It is asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, emotions, desires, thoughts, and commitments. But I, but I think it's also a lordship petition in that it is asking for kingdom realities to make their way into the world. And for us, into Ocean County and Tom's River in particular, your kingdom come as we come along couples struggling in their marriages. 
Your kingdom come as we hold husbands accountable to cherish their wives. Your kingdom come as we sit with those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Your kingdom come as we provide help to those struggling with addiction. Your kingdom come as we meet the financial needs of those struggling in our midst. Your kingdom come as we shoulder one another's burdens through prayer and community. Your kingdom come as we seek to embody this sermon as a church individually. Your kingdom come as we proclaim the cross and the resurrection to a lost and dying world. Your kingdom come as we allow ourselves, this church, Redeemer Tom's River, to be used by God as a conduit by which the glory of God's name and the rule and reign of his kingdom can freely flow into our communities. Your kingdom come is a very powerful prayer. And there's a lot going on if we are really asking for God's kingdom to come. Sadly, we often use prayer as an excuse, though, to sit back and allow this world to just happen to us or happen in front of us. But we must see prayer as the power that fuels us as we embark on the mission of God. Harvey Kahn, a former professor at missions at Westminster, says it like this. He says, prayer's asking is not wishing. It's demanding that people come to Christ because Christ has come to us. It is demanding that the world be changed because Christ has come to change it. When we cry out, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are begging God to act in accordance with his mission and his will. We are begging God that the lost are found. We are begging God that the blind receive their sight. We are begging God that the captives and the oppressed are set free. We are begging God that the mourners be comforted. And we are begging God that the reign and rule of Christ extend throughout all of creation. This is what we're praying into as we pray the Lord's Prayer and as we pray in step with the Lord's prayer. The name of God is made holy and the kingdom and will of God are made clear when his people, the church, bend their knees submissively to God in prayer and move toward the lost and dying of this world with the good news of the gospel. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that calls upon God to act. And the primary way in which God acts in the world today is through the people of God, his church. It's the primary way he's acting in this world. It's through us. And so when we pray that this earth would be like it is in heaven, it needs to start here. It needs to start in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, how we raise our kid, how we, how we relate to one another as the body of Christ. That when there is an issue, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that we would approach one another and that we would deal with those issues before they fester and become bitterness, before they turn into murder, as Jesus warns against. That our eyes would be shielded from lusts, that we would seek to reconcile with those who have, have, have wronged us, that we would turn the other cheek and allow ourselves to be shamed on account of the gospel. That's what it means to pray on earth as it is in heaven because this right here the church gathered the church sent is heaven going into the world it's heaven going into the world and the reality of the christian faith is that we are not going to heaven when we die but one day heaven is coming down to earth and everything will be changed 
And right now, we have the opportunity to be the means by which that change slowly starts to take place in our midst. And it's a high calling, and it's a regular calling, all at the same time, because it happens in the normal, everyday relationships of our lives with our neighbors, with one another. And I think often we want it to be this big, huge thing, but it's actually rather ordinary. And we have to fight that temptation to feel as though we are not participating in the kingdom because our lives are regular or normal. In fact, your lives are supposed to be normal. In fact, Paul tells us that we should, we should make it our ambition to lead peaceful and quiet lives, which is such a strange verse. And we're not going to get into it right now because it's so much. But the question we need to ask when we pray that prayer on earth as it is in heaven, the question we need to be asking ourselves, is this what we really want? Do we really desire the heavenly reign of Christ to subvert the powers and principalities of this world? See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought they wanted that too. They thought they wanted that too until it meant a loss of power and privilege for them. And that's precisely what it will mean for us is that we will lay aside our power, lay aside our privilege, lay aside our rights for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus did. That is the beauty of the incarnation. When he entered into this world, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid it aside. And if we are to be followers of Jesus... And we are to be, as the word Christian means, little Christ spread throughout the world. Then we need to follow the actual Jesus we read in the pages of scripture. Who laid aside his rights for the sake of others. Who met needs. Who cared for others. Who called out sin, but welcomed people into repentance. That's the kind of Jesus we need to be. And it's written throughout the scriptures. If we just read through the gospels and we look at the life of Christ, we will see that what he's calling us to is, is, is a life of suffering and giving over of ourselves for the sake of others. But as we looked at last week, there is reward for that. Just like there was reward for Christ for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And likewise for us, for the joy set before us in the heavenly places and when heaven comes down in the new heavens and the new earth, there is unspeakable joy awaiting us as we seek to follow Jesus in this life. That's what we're called to. That's the calling of the Christian life. And it's all being wrapped up here in the Lord's Prayer. He moves on. And I'm going to try and move a little bit faster. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we look at this passage where it talks about our daily bread, we need to recognize that, yes, there is this daily provision that we are praying to God for. That every single thing that we have is a good gift from God. As we eat together later and we share a meal, all that is coming from God. But Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, again, he's quoting Martin Luther. He says something a little bit different that was really challenging to me as I read it this week. He says, for all to get daily bread, there must be a thriving economy, good employment, and a just society. Therefore, to pray, give us all the people of our land daily bread, is to pray against wanton, wanton exploitation in business, trade, and labor, which crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. This is where prayer, once again, especially together as a church, is shown to be a missional engagement. 
where we not only pray for the salvation of the lost and the social ills of our society to be eradicated, but we step into the mess empowered by the Spirit through prayer. I mean, think about this in your own lives. When, when maybe you're at community group or maybe you're with friends and family and, and someone comes and says, we're struggling financially. And I might have used this example before, but we're, we're struggling financially. And everyone says, you know what, let's pray. Let's get together and, and let's huddle together and let's pray for so-and-so that they might have their needs met. And, and the reality is, is, that, is that we can pray all day, but, but the need being met might just be right there in your midst. It might be right there in our midst. And that's where we need to see prayer as this push. What we're praying for, God might have already answered through us. What we're praying for, God might have already answered through us. And that's what he's calling. He's calling us to think. See, Christianity is not some random sort of like mindless following of Jesus. It's, it's a thoughtful call. And we need to see it as a thoughtful call. While we go through rites and rituals where we'll take communion later and, and we do things that are traditional, we need to think through these things. And the same thing with prayer. As we kneel down before God to pray, what are we praying? Why are we praying? And how is it that God has already given me the ability to meet the need of whatever it is that I'm praying for? He then goes into one of the more difficult parts of the Lord's Prayer. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and then if you jump down to verse 14 and 15 with me it says for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses it's one of those passages where you read it and if you read it carefully you begin trembling a little bit because if you listen carefully there's this if then sort of thing it's conditional right if you forgive others their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. What does that mean? What does that mean? That's terrifying. Because I know there are people in this room, myself included, who have not forgiven people in their lives. And I'm studying through that this week, and I'm, I'm like, I'm sweating as I'm studying. I'm like, and I'm thinking through who do I need to make amends with. And the reality is, is that what Jesus is getting at is if we don't care about making it right with those who, with whom our relationship is broken with, if we just couldn't care less about that, there's something broken about our heart. There's something broken about our heart. And in fact, it could be so broken that, that we are calling God in heaven our Father when maybe we ought not to be. It can be so broken. And again, as we look at these passages, there's nothing but grace here because, because he would, if he didn't want us to know about it, he wouldn't have said it. And he says it. He tells us, listen, if that's you, you can fix that. Bend your knee to Jesus and forgive those who have wronged you. You can make that right. It's grace that it's written here in our text. It's nothing but grace. Because God didn't have to tell us that. He didn't have to. But he tells us what we need to know so that we might walk with him faithfully. He doesn't tell us everything. 
But he certainly tells us what we need to know so that we might walk with him faithfully. And forgiveness is absolutely required of one who claims God as their father. It's required. It's the calling that's been placed upon our lives. Why? Because we are to be like Jesus who hung on a cross and cried out, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus embodies the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this throughout the course of the series. He embodies the Sermon on the Mount. He fulfills it at every single point. At every single point. And he's calling us to go and do likewise. What does it mean to pray the Lord's Prayer? It means that we are engaging in the mission of God. And that we are participating in the heavenly places. That we are participating in the reign and rule of Jesus as we go to prayer. What an invitation. What an invitation that we can talk with our Father who is in heaven. The one who spoke creation into existence. The one that sustains all things. That holds it all together. We get to Go to him. And as we talked about last week, he sees us, and more so this week, he hears us and wants to hear us and invites us so that he might hear us. He wants to know his people intimately because he knows us, but he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And like I said, the Lord's Prayer is not only a model but it was actually practiced by Christ himself. As we flip over to Matthew 26, if you want to go there with me. Verse 36 and following, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus is heading to the cross right now. Then he said to them in verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little far farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The same word. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. As we come to the table this morning, we come as sons and daughters of God. And we come to partake of the bread and the cup together. In the same way Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and poured out for the forgiveness of sins, we drink the cup of the new covenant. And we drink and we eat so that we might be strengthened for the mission that is set before us. Redeemer Fellowship. I pray that what is true of heaven will be true of earth and that truth begins with the people of God. And for us, it begins here at the tables as we share in this simple meal. 
My hope is that we would allow this pattern of prayer to not only shape our personal and corporate prayer lives, but that we would be shaped as a people here in Toms River, New Jersey, to be emboldened for the mission before us, to proclaim the resurrection of Christ so that many might come to know him as Lord and Savior to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace and I thank you for just the beautiful words that you teach your people, Father. But I pray that they would be more than beautiful words on a page. While they are some of the most poetic words in the Bible, I pray that they would be more than beautiful poetry and that they would be a pattern of life for us as a church and individually. Father, I pray, Lord, for our people. I pray for myself, Lord God, that we would be a people marked by suffering for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom so that many might come to know you, Lord, even this morning, Lord, that many might come to know you, Father. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Redeemer Fellowship.